to do away with grief in that way, to, to kind of do away with the idea of a separation between the living and the dead. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm 100% successful in that, in that venture at all. You know, I still miss my dad a lot, but, but trying to kind of reconfigure that sense of grief and to think about the things that the dead gave me, think about the things that I carry still that the dead gave me, um, and to realize that nobody's going anywhere. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. My first exposure to Samantha Hunt was in 2017 when The New Yorker published her short story, A Love Story, which is included in her collection, The Dark Dark, from that same year. I was very late to the game here. By 2017, she had already written three novels, The Seas, The Invention of Everything, and Mr. Splitfoot. But I was very taken with this story and excited to catch up. The story was kind of sharp and dreamy at the same time, and there's a line early on in it that goes, Every real thing started life as an idea. I've imagined objects and moments into existence. And I went back to that line as I was preparing for this interview because I think it really encapsulates Hunt's gift, which is riding the line between the real and the purely imaginary, and then making the blurring of those two feel really rich and exciting. That's absolutely the mood of her latest book, The Unwritten Book, which is her first nonfiction work, and it's kind of a book within a book. It's an annotation of a novel that Hunt's father began late in his life, which she only found after he died. It's also her attempt to get at everything she can't know about him, about his creative process and her process and herself. We talked about being a writer standing on the edge of the unknown, the unknown text, the unknown terrain, the unknown project. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. When I was 17 years old, I got to move in to a geodesic dome for the next 10 years. And it was like on a mountaintop in Vermont. It was my boyfriend's, my boyfriend's uncle moved out of it and kind of just let us have it. And so all through my college years and afterwards, I got to live in this like amazing space in the middle of nowhere. And um, I was there alone for a long period. And I remember getting really, really, really scared in the middle of the night. I mean, it was completely in the middle of nowhere on a mountain in Vermont. And I was lying there like, I'm not going to make it through the night. I'm so scared. I can't even move my body. And I just kind of put it to myself. I was like, you have to go outside right now. I, I think that I was like sleeping and I just had like a t-shirt on or something, nothing that felt, you know, protective at all. Nothing that felt like armor. And I was like, go outside right now. And so I did. And I walked out there like just in my undies and I was like, all right, universe, if you're going to kill me, kill me now, you know, kind of like if, if the serial killers are coming, let them come right now. And if not forever, hold your peace, serial killers. Um, I know that sounds like really bad tempting fate, but I did. And I kind of stood there for a long time outside in the night and I waited until the fear went away and it was beautiful out there. Of course, it was like starry night and just terrifically peaceful and, and gorgeous out there. And I went back in and I was like, okay, I'm good. What were you afraid of in the middle of the night? What was the, the monster? 
I think it just like, honest to goodness. And this is funny too. Earlier we were talking about me having three teenage girls and they're really, they're entering that point in their life where they love to watch horror movies. And I can't do that at all anymore. But I have to say, I think that what I was scared of in my bed that night in my twenties or whatever, however old I was, was like that memory of, of horror, you know, the memory of like, of, uh, Michael Myers or Jason, or just like this vague, um, un, you know, can't quite put my finger on it, but something bad is coming for me. Um, and also, you know, the way I think that living in a female body, we're made to feel vulnerable. Um, what are you doing alone in the woods? You know, all of these questions, like, in fact, I mean, that's something I write about a lot now, like where does the female body belong in nature alone? Um, and it's something I think about all the time now and probably comes out of that experience. Like, am I allowed to be here? You know, um, so much of our, so much of our experience of like what it means to be kind of an extreme outdoor person really comes through uh, the male experience and, and so much so that, you know, you find situations of violence happening to women in the woods. And I think it, it partly comes out of just such a, such a, um, you know, stained idea of thinking that the woods belong to male bodies alone. And so when you find a woman there alone, she doesn't belong right? So the first reaction is surprise or something. Um, And I very much felt that when I was 17 years old. I very much felt like I'm trespassing here. Uh, But I loved it and I wanted to stay. And so I had to somehow come to terms with um, getting over the bad stories that I'd been told about who gets to own the woods. Yeah, that reminds me of a scene in the unwritten book where you and your daughters go for a walk during a snowstorm just because it's beautiful outside and a police officer stops and scolds your daughters because it's not safe to be walking in a snowstorm, according to him. (laughs) Yeah. The the way my blood boiled at that. Yeah. That idea of, you know, get home. And also just like watching my daughters kind of ingest that poison because one of them, the oldest one was like, let's go home, mom. And, you know, there were no cars on the road. It was a on blizzard and he was the only car out there. So I started, I kind of lost my mind and started yelling at the cop and telling him that he was the only dangerous thing on the road. And he, he drove off, you know, he eventually left and, and, you know, dismissed me as a crazy hotheaded person, which maybe I am, but, um, but yeah, that, that idea of like trying, you know, uh, I guess, you know, having the, the care of these three young girls has made me really attentive to the ways that people do try to keep girls inside. Um, you know, the way that even architecture is constructed so often to protect the female body. The other, that, that essay that you just mentioned, I think that that's the one where I bring up Paul Marshall's book, uh, Brown Girl Brownstone, which is a text that I always teach because I, I teach at Pratt in Brooklyn and that book is set in that neighborhood. And, um, and, you know, she, in that novel, really sets up this parallel of, like, young girl body against the architecture. 
And the mother who is scared and wants to shield her daughter from sexism and racism cannot wait to buy a brownstone. Like that's all she cares about because she just wants to protect her daughters. And the girl has a very different experience where she's like, well, why do I have to hide my body? You know, why can't I like be a dancer on the stage or why can't I just be out in public? And, um, and I think about that tension all the time is like, you know, do, is it, am I being irresponsible by, um, by not telling my daughters to be more careful, you know, to not tell them to stay inside, to not tell them to protect themselves. I do. I definitely remember a moment where, um, where like after, you know, when they were young when I would say, love all the people, right. You know, love all the people, trust all the people, let's be open. And then reaching a moment where I was like, Oh wait, I got to modify this story a little bit. I have to change it up and, and introduce the idea of fear, like thinking about whatever little red riding hood, you know, thinking about the ways, the stories that we start to tell to warn girls about danger. Um, and that's what a horrible thing to have to take on, you know, to have to wield the idea of fear um, and and have to introduce that into girls' lives. It's interesting that you thought of Little Red Riding Hood, which is that quintessential, you know, small, small vulnerable body going into the woods, right? Yeah. Um, and... And not being afraid, actually. I feel like that's the thing about Little Red Riding Hood is that she's not afraid until it's too late. It doesn't occur to her, really, to be afraid of the woods. Um, but it's, yeah. it seems like so much of your writing in the dark, dark, but even in the unwritten book and in other, in other books of yours, is a you seem to be really wanting to kind of place yourself like squarely in the dark in the dark woods, right? Like back in the geodesic dome or outside the geodesic dome um, and examining what that fear mechanism is and where it comes from and why it's there and what happens when you, when you just sort of stand there naked with it for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that is the position I like to write from. I mean, and that, it it became the project expanded, I think, with the unwritten book because it was like, okay, so what are we afraid of? We're not just afraid of Michael Myers, right? Basically behind all of that, behind our whole tradition of horror films is um, our fear of death. And, and I think after I lost my dad, I was really uncomfortable with the narrative that we have about for death, at least in America. Um, and I didn't want to sit with grief for too long. And I didn't want to sit with fear of death for too long. And, and, um, Katha Pollitt, uh, Darcy Steinke in her amazing book about menopause, um, flash count diary, she quotes Katha Pollitt saying, you know, the problem for women has always been that they need new narratives. They need new stories. And I was like, yeah, that's that's was my project for the unwritten book. I was like, okay, what's the new narrative for death that I can come up with for me? I mean, there's a lot of really positive narratives about death. They just don't get told in America that often, I think. Um, and so a lot of that project of the unwritten book came 
trying to find a new way for me to think about death that didn't kind of, uh, you know, didn't kind of overwhelm me with grief or didn't overwhelm me with fear. I didn't, I didn't want to come to, come to um, my older years terrified of dying. Yeah. What, can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on about what, what was lacking to you or what was, what was problematic to you in what felt, what the, the story that felt immediately available to you about death and about your father's death? Um, well, I mean, I was kind of overwhelmed with grief. He was, he was only 71 and I was in my twenties. And so it didn't seem right that he would be gone before he got to see the rest of my siblings in my life. I'm one of six kids. And so, um, so I mean, grief is certainly part of it, but I, I, I remember, uh, an older friend at the time said to me, you know, she said, well, I lost my dad 30 years ago and I still talk to him every day. And that kind of started me thinking about, um, the real truth of death, you know, and the real truth of, um, the, the first law of thermodynamics, you know, is like no matter is ever created or destroyed and, and we're not, we're not going anywhere, you know? And so insisting on that narrative, insisting on the idea of like, nobody's going anywhere, uh, matter does not leave this planet, you know? And so, so to do away with grief in that way, to, to kind of do away with the idea of a separation between the living and the dead, um, it's not, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm 100% successful in that, in that venture at all. You know, I still miss my dead a lot. Um, but, but trying to kind of reconfigure that sense of grief and to think about, think about the things that the dead gave me, think about the things that I carry still that the dead gave me, um, and to realize that nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. The thing that I'm thinking about while I'm listening to you is that there's this intense resonance between, um, this question of like the dark and maybe scary forest and the question of where the dead go, right? That's a, that's an old, um, that's an old, old image that we have in story for like the limits of our knowledge and the way that it feels like the ultimate limit of human knowledge is, uh, it happens at the threshold of death. And, and also in this book, the unwritten book, it feels like you are introducing a third string, which is the, all the things that aren't, that can't be written, all the things that can't be said. There's this great unfinished book. There's a huge amount of things that sort of can't be known about your father as an artist or as a person. Um, and there's, there's so, there's so many ways in which it feels like the unwritten book is an attempt to reckon with Terra Incognita. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to find joy in that terra incognita, I think, was a large part of the project. Like my dad was a total trickster and he loved word games and he loved playing with language. And I do too. Like I love the idea of games. Um, I remember my friend Ed Park said to me years ago, he was like, he said, whenever I tell people I'm a writer, they always say, oh, do you write mysteries? And he said that his response was always, there's mysterious elements, you know, and I thought, oh, that's kind of like the perfect thing to say to anybody. 
And um, that's always stayed with me, like that idea of finding joy in mystery. And, and quite honestly, the writers who I love are writers who, who point out mystery and never try to solve it, right? So some idea of like, yeah, there's tremendous mystery and we as adorable and naive humans run around trying to solve the mystery because it's fun because that's a game, right? Trying to figure it out, what it all means. It's like playing a word game. Um, it's like trying to solve a puzzle. And we're, we're pretty bad at it, but we continue to try. And I think for me, I, um, I, I thought, you know, rather than um, accepting answers that didn't make much sense to me, maybe like, you know, rather like then um, kind of going into organized religion or um, finding answers that weren't the ones that I provided for myself. I was like, it would be a lot, make a lot more sense for me if I just became comfortable living with questions or living with blanks, right? That's one of the chapters of the unwritten book is called The Blanks. And, um, and I started that chapter because some of the pages of my dad's book ended with the question, it like broke off midway through and it said, but it, and then the page just like dropped into whiteness. And I was like, wait, but it, but it what, but it what, you know, and it seemed the perfect um, place for me to start thinking about these ideas of just having these blanks and holding on to these blanks. And, um, and I mean, and the book goes on to kind of link that blank space with like, you know, I was thinking about As I Lay Dying and, and Faulkner has like the, the coffin certainly as the blank space, but he also has the womb as the blank space. And so, um, you know, I wanted to try to make that link between like women who carry a cavity in the center of their body and a cavity that's kind of like a place of possibility and also a place of mystery, right? None of us really understand how our bodies work that well. Um, you know, I thought, okay, this is the perfect idea of thinking about um, empty boxes, which is another one of the chapters of that book. Um, and that that title came out of after my grandma died, I was cleaning out her condo and I found a box in her cupboard that said empty boxes and I opened it up and it was empty. And I was like, oh my God, you're going to make me crazy, go crazy, you know, but I loved it. It's, it's, an, it's like, an art piece. It was an <laughs> art piece. It seemed like part of the joke. It seemed like she was in on the joke and she was a total trickster also, you know, and would like always with the twinkly eyes and smiling. And so, um, so I loved that idea of like, oh, do you want the answer, honey? Oh, here you go. Ha 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 ha. You know, that she was kind of offering that to me after her death. And she was, she was really important in shaping all of these ideas too. She was a completely devout Christian and she loved, loved, loved Jesus, like kind of almost romantically, kind of almost like sexually. She had all these really hot, hot pictures of Jesus around her condo. Um, and I know, and she loved men too. She was like, you know, really uh, loved men. Um but she was so smart about it too. And she realized that a lot of the sexist language of Christianity bothered me and upset me. And she was like the first one to say, she was like, you know, if you have a problem with the word God, just change it to the word love. If you have a problem with the father, 
call it, call God the mother, you know? And, um, she said it just like, no, no big deal. Of course we do that. You know, of course you have to adapt. And, uh, that, and she told me that when I was really young and that was like the greatest liberation to have someone I admired so much tell me that I could just change the definition of any word that I wanted to basically, if it didn't, if it didn't work for me, if it didn't help to, um, make calm and love and peace and understanding and then change it up. And so, wow, that was like, what a, what a tremendous liberty to be given at a young age. Yeah. For some reason that reminds me of, um, I was really little and I asked my mom if the Bible was true. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I had just heard, I wasn't raised in a religious family and I had just heard that there were, that there was this thing called the Bible and, and people thought it was literally true. And, you know, I was just sort of being hipped to the Bible and what the Bible is, is to many people. And I asked my mom, well, okay, is it, is it true? And she said, you know, I don't know, but a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about this think that the Bible is a metaphor. Mm. Do you know what a metaphor is? And I did know I did know what a metaphor was. And she said, "So maybe maybe it, maybe that's true. Maybe it's maybe the Bible is a metaphor and it's true the way a metaphor is true." And the thing that I loved so much about that is that it invited First of all, it was just so much more of a complicated answer than yes or no. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, what? Like, yeah. what does that mean? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, then I was having to think about what it means, the way in which a metaphor is true, and and it actually, if the if the stories in the Bible are a metaphor, then they require a lot of engagement and unpacking, and a lot of it's it's a it's a kind of truth that isn't. This, this may be a slant truth or a hidden truth or, so, you know, there was just so much possibility that got opened and so much space that was made in the same way of your grandmother saying, well, just change the, you know, if you don't like the language, change the language, which is a remarkable thing to say to a person who's going to be a writer because the, the, the young writer also probably feels like, oh, but when you change language, you change everything. You change the, the full spectrum of possibility. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that, that your mom gave you that complication too. I I mean, and it makes so much sense too, because it's, I mean, when we're thinking about the idea of, um, especially nowadays, like we're having so much trouble navigating the difference between truth and fact in America. And, um, and especially when it comes to scientific communities and, um, and really, you know, one thing that that is frustrating to me is feeling that out of um, out of a fear of like people who don't respect science, uh, which you know, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of those people, uh, and um, but that it's made it so that science insists on. Um, moving away from the metaphorical or moving away from the stories where there might be a multiple truth um, because people confuse the idea of truth and fact all the time, right? So if we're thinking about, you know, well, I mean, I guess it even goes back to the question of just like the truth 
of an individual, right? That we love to imagine that we are individuals rather than pluralities. We love to imagine that we're a singularity when in, in, in essence, you know, that's not true. I just heard, um, or, oh, it was a photo essay in the times about pronouns. And, um, there was a person there who chose they, them pronouns and they did so because they wanted to include their ancestors and I was like, ah, oh, that's, that's a beautiful reason for they, them pronouns. And I thought, man, if I, when I was a girl, I wish that I'd had they, them pronouns for God. Um, and it, I, you know, I would have saved myself a lot of, uh, strife and anger. Um, but then I also started thinking about like the idea of the individual body as a place of the multiple and I was like, from what we're learning about gut biomes, you know, and all the bacteria that it takes to make um, to make an individual, it's so absurd, the idea that we think of ourselves as individuals. And, and out of that, for me, comes this idea of a, multi, a multiple truth, right? That, that stories can be interpreted in many ways, and it doesn't mean that an interpretation is wrong. Um, it means that an interpretation is different, right? One question I kind of started this project, this book with was like, do you believe in ghosts? I mean, and I was asking myself that too. I'm like, um, do I believe in ghosts? I'm like, you know, what's a ghost? Like, is a postcard a ghost? Is a bruise a ghost? Is, you know, there's a lot of different ghosts. And, and, and I was con- thinking about like, what are the things that we carry in our body that we can't get rid of. Like even pop songs, right? There's an essay about the band One Direction in there, like because their songs get into my body and I can't get them out. Um, and and so like uh, anything like that that we carry around with us, the way that, that maybe that person is thinking about carrying their ancestors, the way that we carry our gut bacteria, all of these things that make up one body, you know, how many of those things are ghosts? And so the question like, do you believe in ghosts? It becomes a lot more complicated really, really quickly for me. Um, and I think that when I started writing about the dead and when I started writing about hauntings and, and ghosts, I was quickly frustrated by people who were like really dismissive of the idea of ghosts because they're thinking of one sort of, you know, movie or television haunting of like, the white They're thinking about coming. Ghostbusters. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh, that was one of my original questions. I was like, wait, if ghosts are dead people, why are they all evil? Like, you're de- do you hate your, all your dead people? You know, I'm like, why is it suddenly this idea of like, ah, right? The scary ghost in the closet. I don't know. Like the reason why all the ghosts in that movie are are nefarious and the reason why ghost stories are supposed to be scary stories I think is just because the ghosts are the thing out there in the dark and we don't understand the thing out there in the dark and often reflexively the idea is okay we'll get closer to the fire and the way to get people closer to the fire is to tell them that what's out there are the ghosts and the ghosts don't mean them well yeah 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 and and you know and if you say that the ghosts don't mean you well, it's a good way to keep people from um, coming up with their own narratives about it too, right? It's a good way to say, 
I'll interpret the Bible for you. And here it is. Here's what it means. And it means, you know, maybe something really hateful. The Unwritten Book is such a cool project because it is an investigation. I mean, among other things, it's also an investigation and a, and a reprinting and an annotation of this book that your father started and didn't finish this novel, probably, or maybe novella. <laughs> and um, and I, there was something that I thought was really bold about the idea of undertaking the project of seeing if you could understand, if you could kind of find the find solve the mystery of this novel um, that was left behind when it's clear that because there's a limited you know you have what you have there's both going to be there's going to be no there there or (laughs) there's going to be everything there you know to to structure a whole book around a search where at the end you have everything that you had at the at the beginning feels very brave in some way to me Um, not that not that your reader knows everything from the beginning because we don't we get the book you know we get to read the book chronologically um his book i mean and your book together but it's uh, maybe it maybe it was it it sprang to mind when we were talking about the bible which is that like oh there's no there the story is just it's already there and it's you know it's true or it's not true there's nothing there's nothing more you can find or there's everything there you can find. And you can reread that story over and over and over again um, and pick it apart and find something different. I think because I've only found three chapters of this book that my dad wrote, and I found them after he was dead, so I had no ability to ask him about this book, no way to know, did other chapters ever exist? Did you know where the book was going? Do you know how it ended? I... I have to say, I found a tremendous truth in that, that his book already came with all the holes in it, right? It already came with the fact of his mortality in it. it and um, I think the best metaphor I can come up with for that is like, I look at um, those beautiful translations of Sappho that Ann Carson did, right? And mm. and it, where it's like the holes, you know, from the papyrus, the holes are very much evident in Carson's translations, like she just leaves huge, huge gaping holes on the white space of the page. And to me, that always struck me as so beautiful that that Sappho could have never intended how much her work would end up speaking to us of what time does, what worms do, what mortality does to the written word. Um, you know, that her that her work ended up having Ah, such a but such a greater meaning to me because of the fact that she didn't know what time was going to do to the work. Uh, when I found my dad's book and it was only these three chapters, and it left off on you know this moment of like, but it you know where there's all these holes in it. Um, it seemed, of course, to me like me being the kind of very cheesy investigator putting on my detective hat and being like, Hey, I'm going to solve this mystery. Uh, where did my dad go? You know, where is that place that dead people go again? Right. Um, that, uh, the fact that the book was already broken was so beautiful to me that it, and it made so much sense to me. It was like, okay, we're already, you know, he was already, (laughs) well, I don't know that he was already accustomed to the idea, but, um, that the, the larger truth that I took away was these 
the holes in his text, you know, these empty boxes or these blanks, whatever you want to call them, these places that we can't know the mystery that's going to happen there. Yeah, there was a second part of the question I want, of my curiosity <laughs> that I just remembered as well, okay. which is how, structurally speaking, how did you think about shaping your book, which has mm. really a has really an arc to it, um, knowing, you know, when you're also running up against the fact that in some ways you're going to end right where you began, which is with an incomplete text. How did you, how did you create? the the form of your of your text sort of your supra text i should tell you that i'm i'm very bad at being organized about uh the process of writing and basically i just make everything a huge mess at first and it was such a mess that i didn't even know that my dad's book was part of the book when i first started writing it and it began because i was after i had written mr splitfoot and i had spent you know, all these years investigating the dead, that book is about the dead also. Um, I had all these kind of extra hauntings that I didn't have a space for. And I was still thinking about them. And so the first pieces that I wrote for the unwritten book were um, an essay on hoarding and an essay on hormones. I kind of also just liked that those two things sounded alike, I think. And I was like, I'm going to force these things to be in conversation with each other, hormones and hoarding and, and see, see where it goes. But I was very much thinking about them as these places where we get calcified in our body, where we kind of carry ghosts around that haunt us that even if we don't want them to be there. Um, and so I was just thinking about hauntings. In fact, that was the working title for years and years was just hauntings. Um, and I had always had, I had my dad's book as part of, you know, something that I was always going to use one day. Um, he'd been, he'd been dead since I was, you know, he'd already been dead 20 years, I think when I started writing this book. Um, and I wish I could better remember when suddenly I was like, Oh, maybe this is where it's going. This is where it belongs. And I, you know, dug it out and was surprised to find the places that it was really in conversation with the stuff I was already thinking about. And so then I could think more towards your question of structure. And my first impulse was to finish writing his book. And that was a really bad <laughs> impulse. And I knew really quickly that I couldn't do that because I just had way too many questions. Because um, really quickly, the narrative of his book that's included here is about people who can fly without wings. And my dad always had dreams that he could fly. He always had flying dreams. And he wrote this book when he was getting sober after, you know, like 40 years of life as an alcoholic. Um, and so a lot of his idea about flight had to do with um, about being sober, about kind of reclaiming some sort of artistic freedom for himself away from disease. Um, and so uh, I was like, great, I'm just going to finish his book. I'm just going to write the end of it. And then I like, got into it. And it was so personal to his life. And it had so many, so many unanswered questions, primarily like, you know, I was just like, okay, my biggest question is like, dad, did you fly without wings? You know? Um, and I couldn't answer those questions. And so then I immediately knew like, no, this is all going to have to be in response to his book and not a finishing of it. 
And anyways, it felt like to finish it and to kind of make it into a nice, neat, tidy package that has a beginning, middle, and end was like completely counter to the whole project of trying to live with mystery, trying to live with the holes, and and trying to live with these empty boxes that that we don't get to know in life. So I scratched that idea. <laughs> Do you feel like this book com- completed something for you, though? Even though you wound up realizing that completing this unwritten book, his unwritten book, was not was not the project. Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. No, it totally did. It, I mean, it it has a sense of an ending for me, even if it's the ending of just like, okay, clues are gonna keep on compiling themselves my whole life. Um, and, you know, and, and being comfortable living with that idea of like, even just the idea of turning, um, our, our quest for understanding the meaning of life and death into a game that itself arriving there was a huge idea of just of feeling, um, you know, that, that the purpose had been achieved, right. That, that, that there was some sort of joy in death suddenly for me. And, you know, and that joy comes from just trying to decode these messages. And, and at one point I write, you know, I don't even care if the messages aren't really coming from dead people at all. That's not my point. Um, the, the way that I think about decoding messages from the dead is honestly just a way to observe our world closely and to love it, you know, like to to hold it closely and to listen to the birds and to be like, oh, is that you, grandma? Oh, even if it's not, I don't care because it means something to me when that bird is is uh, chirping to me. You know, it means something beautiful and it means um, a larger story that I can't fully understand. Um, so yeah, so it did. It 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 certainly was something complete for me in finishing this book. My guess is that the underlying interest though of standing at the edge of the dark and looking at it with some kind of curiosity is not over for you. <laughs> and and I'm and I wanted to ask how how that's manifesting in your writing life right now. Um yeah, it's not over for me at all. Um I think when I when we first started this conversation and I was talking so much about the woods, it's because my newest project is very much about the interface with the female body in the woods. Um, I mean, I guess that I've already written that book in some ways, but this one is different, that it's really thinking about uh, humans' role in the natural world. It's hard. It's a hard place for us to stand these days because I feel like all we see is the ways that we damage the natural world. All the way, you know, all we see is how much we are... uh, we don't deserve to be part of, um, the earth's systems. Um, and, you know, and it's really easy to hear a message that says all humans should die right now if we want the earth to survive. Um, that's a hard message for me to hear and I don't really want to hear that message. Um, and so I'm going into this 
latest project with that question in mind, like where do we belong in nature? Where do we belong in the woods? Um, I know I'm not alone in feeling like the position that we've had for hundreds and hundreds of years, that we are the stewards of nature. A lot of people are realizing that that was a fallacy, um, you know, and that that was kind of an egoism that is is sickening and and has proven pretty fatal to our planet. And so, um, you know, it seems like it's a good time t- for me to re-examine that relationship. Like, okay, if we're not the stewards of nature, which of course we're not, um, what are we? How are we? How can we feel like we're part of this system that's not a broken part of it? Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.